Welcome to the Chris Podcast for Tuesday, the 28th of January, 2020. Steve Torso speaks with Dominic Woolrich, CEO of LawPath, and we get to understand why we shouldn't be leaving our legals to the last minute, especially for our capital raise. All right, welcome, welcome to the Chris Podcast. Today we have Dominic from LawPath. Uh, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Dominic. Great to be here. Thanks, Steve. Mate, well, obviously we wanted to do this for some time. We've been speaking for, for a couple months about this. Now, we, uh, you know, basically we come across LawPath when, you know, I've obviously heard about you for some time, but really sort of got more intent on, on having a chat and a collaboration as we're sort of launching CRISP. And what I love about, I suppose, the, the approach you're taking, and, you know, I want you to sort of tell, tell the story of law, law path sort of as well as your focus, is that we sort of have a simple, you know, both of us have a simple sort of mission in that we're trying to, I suppose, help people sort of save time and save money and sort of approve efficiency, but just in different areas. Like you're obviously on the legal side and we're sort of more focused on the capital raising side. So as a starting point, can you give us a little bit about the story of uh, law path? Yeah, sure. So LawPath is a legal technology startup. We are just coming up to five years old now. And um, really our mission, very similar to CRISP, is, is to, to take some processes that have been traditionally always done offline and take them online, in this case, legal services, especially legal services that can be commoditized and put them onto a platform um, that allows people to use the tech to either complete legal services themselves, so like a DIY type solution, or connect easily to a lawyer that um, that can that can help them out. So, you know, people, the legal industry can be really confusing for people, um, especially small businesses and startups. Um, 100%. And it's, it's, um, it's an industry that's also quite hard to avoid because when you are starting a business or you are um, raising capital, you're going to have to talk to a lawyer to help you through that process. Um, so what we have built over the last couple of years is a platform um, that you can access these types of services. And really what we're, what we're looking at is we, we've looked at what happened in the accounting industry over the last 10 years and, and new companies and new platforms coming into the accounting industry like Zero uh, like and Intuit and things like that. And we're saying, well, why can't we do that to the legal industry? Why can't we have platforms in the legal industry that help people with their basic legal needs or help people through certain processes of light capital raising? So we, um, we have about 100,000 clients on the platform now. Um, you know, we onboard about 220 clients a day. Um, now, you know, you can only do that if you've got the help of technology. Um, those clients or users range from small businesses that are just starting out. So maybe they're just setting up their very first company all the way through to startups that have, you know, 50, 60, 70 people that are going through their series A or series B. Um, just to give you a, a kind of a, a quick sense of, day to day what, what we're working on. Um, there's probably three pillars to the business. The first is uh, helping people start up. So that is um, setting up the company or setting up the business. So we have some APIs that connect in with ASIC that allow us to do that really, really quickly. Um, and often you can do that without the help of need of an accountant or a lawyer. The second is our uh, document automation or our subscription plans. So through those plans, you pay a monthly or an annual fee and you can access legal documents, legal tools, and unlimited calls with lawyers. And then um, the third area of the business is our lawyer marketplace. Uh, so these are 
lawyers uh, from all over Australia. They either work from home. You know, we've got a lot of stay-at-home mums on the platform. We've got a lot of semi-retired lawyers on the platform. And if you're looking to connect to a lawyer, you can do it through through LawPath. Um, that helps the clients out because, as I like to say, they're, they're not paying for the, the marble staircase and the mahogany bookshelves. Um, <laughs> they're, they're just paying for good lawyers that maybe are working from home. Um, and they're doing it all through online. And on the flip side, it really helps the lawyers out. There are a lot of lawyers out there that maybe don't want to work in large firms. Um, they want a more flexible or remote working situation. And so they can work through LawPath to, to connect in with those clients. But I suppose more on the on the flavor of, of today's conversation, roughly about 50% of our clients are startups. And a lot of them are going through the process of starting up, you know, getting it off the ground and getting through those first few years, which are always really risky. Um, and then most importantly, going out there and looking for capital and, and running a process of, of raising their either pre-seed, seed or series A. Gotcha. And as a, as a starting point, like I'm sure you've got a, a basic suite of, uh, I suppose, a checklist of what startups need to do when they're getting started. What would they, what would they typically cover? Yeah, sure. So um, I think we kind of break it down into five key areas uh, when you're first starting up. Um, first area is structure. You need to make sure that you're in the in the correct structure and, and you're 99% of the time that's going to be a company structure or um, you know a, a PTY LTD company. Um, the most important thing about that is that um, it's a separate legal entity. So from a legal and risk perspective, you're, you're separating yourself a little bit from the company. But most importantly, it means that the company is made up of shares. People can buy and sell those shares and investors can buy and sell those shares as well. So I think step one is having the right structure. Step two, and this is the one that, or, or, or area two, and this is the one that people always forget about, is intellectual property and making sure that the intellectual property is in the right spot. When you're first, in the first few years of your business, um, usually the intellectual property or your idea is the most important thing. Um, those intangible assets, you don't have the warehouse or the truck, trucks or all those physical assets yet, especially if you're an online or a, or a software play, but you do have a ton of value in that idea. So it's really important that those intangible assets are in the right spot. And um, that is, it needs to be held by the company. One thing that um, people don't often realize is intellectual property is only assigned in writing. So there needs to be agreements in place that are one, making sure that any IP that was created before the company was started is assigned over to the entity. And then moving forward, any IP that's created is assigned to the entity straight away. So on LawPath, we have a couple of um, simple documents that can help with this. So the first being a, uh, an assignment of IP deed. This is a document that you might use if, say, you've been working with a developer whilst you were just maybe um, at the very, very early stages, you, you were working on your product, um, you hadn't set up a company yet, you weren't really sure if you were going to go ahead with it or not. You might have not have even have left your, um, your, your full-time job. You might be working on it at night times and you, you've got a developer helping you out it's so important that the code that he's writing is assigned over to the new entity. Um, you might not have had any kind of agreement in place with him. So you can use a, an intellectual uh, property deed or an assignment of IP deed to transfer that IP over. 
something really important that you're going to want in your data room because when the uh, investors are coming through and having a look at everything, I can guarantee you one of the things that they're going to look at is the IP and where it's held. Um, one of the other uh, documents that you might use around IP is uh, an employment or a contractor agreement. So how this works is uh, when somebody is working for you, um, you need to make sure that anything that they're creating or any IP that they're creating is being assigned to the company. I'm sure if, you, if everybody listening looks at their employment agreement or their contractor agreement, uh, around about three quarters of the way down, they'll find two very important clauses, one being the intellectual property clause and one being the confidentiality clause. What that intellectual property clause is doing is saying, whilst you're working for that company, um, the IP is being assigned to the entity. So that's number two, um, and that's a very, very important one that people often forget when they're, when they're working. Um, I, I don't want to take too much time, so I will skip. Um, I will just briefly touch on three, four, and five. Um, one of the other considerations that you really need to look at um, uh, is your branding. And so trademarks become very, very important. Um, you want to make sure that you have the right to use the word and no one else can encroach on that. Um, number four um, comes down to um, employees and contractors. So you need to make sure that anybody working for you is under an employment agreement or a contractor agreement, essentially the law that they are. So you need to make sure that there's written agreements with everyone. And then lastly, um, we look at um, kind of connected to structure. Um, we look at, you know, whether your data room is up to date um, with any kind of capital raising documents that you might need. So I think it's really, really important that um, even if you are not thinking about raising capital um, right away, it's so important to have a folder um, or, you know, maybe in CRISP, you have your, your folder structures set up and you're dynamically making sure that all the documentation that you need for your company is in there all the time. And it makes it a lot easier when you do come to raise um, to pull that information together and quickly distribute it to people. So having kind of up-to-date docs is key. And when you're looking at someone's data room, and when you're sort of assessing, you know, as far as what documents they've got in there ahead of a capital raise, what are you, what are you typically looking for? So what, what, when we, we jump into a client's data room, usually we see it broken down into maybe eight to 10 different folders. Um, I think folder one is usually typically all around the structure. So we need to see the certificates of registration. Um, we need to see, um, you know, share certificates that might be issued, all of those resolutions that might come with actually setting the company up. Um, secondly, we look at the IP, so making sure that the IP is all in the right spot, making sure that the domain names are all in the right spot, making sure that the trademarks and any patents are all in the right spot. And then we go down the list and we look at things that might not be suitable for every company, but are often there, such as kind of supplier agreements, license agreements, um, obviously all the employment agreements for the company, any kind of contractor agreements for the company. Um, and then obviously any kind of capital raising docs that might be um, required, you know, for example, a term sheet or any past capital raising docs. And then if you are a little bit further along, you might have an ESOP or an employee share scheme in place. Um, and you'll obviously need all of those documents in there as well. And then lastly, often maybe not in the DD folder, but somewhere very, very close is the current cap table of the business. 
So as you mentioned, like we, like that, that structure, the, the funniest thing for me, as long as we've been doing cap raising for, I didn't really understand that structure of documents required until the tool is sort of at the last minute, not the last minute, but when we started going into conversations with a potential investor. And obviously I think we're both proponents of the idea of companies getting ready well beforehand and sort of always looking to keep the data room up to date. Um, because it really, like opportunity cost is one of the biggest things that most founders deal with. Um, and I, I, the other thing that sort of goes through my mind is that I think from a legal perspective is that, you know, you obviously see best practices in which companies do. And obviously that's what we like to typically like to talk about. What I think would be also relevant is to potentially look at what are some of the disasters uh, that you've seen. Obviously you don't mention any names or anything like that, but I think it's more that what I love you know, about, I suppose, from my side, some of the best things I've got out of working with lawyers is things to avoid. And yeah. if you could give some, I, I suppose, you know, you're, you're in the best seat for that, you know, dealing with a hundred thousand companies, I pretty much imagine that you've seen it all. Uh, and, and if you haven't seen it all yet, you will see it shortly. Um, you know, what, what were some of the, the main things, main things that you would think for startups to, what should they be thinking about that they're not currently because, you know, when we wake up each day, and I'm sure you're the same, you're a CEO of a growth business, you're like, all you want to do is get on with building a business. But there's always things which you miss, forget, and don't think about that can come back to, you know, that can come back to bite you or haunt you, or can be troublesome. You know, I've, I've dealt with, you know, there was a famous story I heard from a founder where they were going to a uh, pretty significant capital raise. And then they realized that one of their entities in another country was no longer registered. You know things like yeah. that. So, what 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 things do you, have you seen that would be really important for companies in the early days, where uh, effectively you've seen absolute disaster scenarios, uh, which could have been easily avoided? Yeah, uh, I've got a lot. I've actually got a presentation that I do quite quite often, which is called Ten Legal Mistakes and How to Avoid Them." And they pretty much take real life examples from from clients that that have come through Law Path. Um, especially, it all seems to go wrong at about that capital raising point. Um, I think that is when <laughs> yeah. it all kind of comes together and you're yep. actually forced to address some of these issues that you may have been quietly kind of, you know, putting on a, on the top shelf somewhere. Um, but especially once you get into a DD phase with, with investors, um, they're going to be making, making sure that all the, 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 the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And so you can't really hide. So there's a couple, and I've, I've almost kind of touched on one before, uh, about five minutes ago because it's the one we see constantly and that is always around intellectual property. So um, the really, I'll, I'll give you an example of one we see all the time and that is that um, you have some people that have got together and, and, and started their own business. Um, they maybe at the very beginning had no structure in place and they jump online and they might use one of these um, uh, online marketplaces for developers most likely one of the global ones where you can pick up some cheap dev work in India or Russia or, you know, a country outside of Australia, let's say. And um, there's no agreement in place for that work to be done. There's been some emails back and forth about, hey, can you do this for me? Can you copy this? Um, but there's nothing formal in place. And then you get to the capital raising point, the invest investors really keen to move forward uh, they want they want to sign a term sheet or they sign a term sheet and they're ready to move into the DD and they say, hey, look, 
we need to see that the code base is owned by the entity, is owned by the company. Can you show us all of the employment agreements or contractor agreements that you've had with all the developers over the last year of everyone that's built the code? And they go, oh crap, we had this guy off freelancer build us this, build us a really core component of the code, but there's nothing in place that shows that the IP has been assigned. Um, and the, the good outcome to that is that you can contact them and, and get some agreement in place and they can retrospectively sign over the IP. The bad outcome of that is that you can't get in contact and um, uh, essentially the, the investor can't prove that the code is owned by the company. So that is one that people always seem to forget and it's really, really important. The other one we come across quite a lot is trademarks. Um, it's really important when you're first starting out um, or in the first couple of years, just to make sure that you've done trademark searches and Google searches and everything you can to make sure that no one else is using your name. The last thing you want to do is build up this great brand and find out that somebody in another state is also using that name, um, maybe less effective than you, but they own the trademark um, and you're, you're blocked from using that name for the next 10 years. So again, that kind of comes into the, the IP side of things. But back to your point about always having a data room up and ready to go, even if you're not looking at cap raise, I think it's such important advice because, um, you know, it is quite a lot of work to get a data room up and running, especially if you are starting from scratch. Yeah. And so it's, it's, so it's, it's one of the biggest things I would say, but the hardest part is actually getting it to that point where it's ready, but keeping yeah. it updated and maintained is a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. And you look, you need these, this, you know, this folder or wherever you're keeping it, it's, it's so it's the core documentation and it's the core information for your business. So as you're creating things, as you're setting up your ESOP or as you're setting up your domain names and your trademark, it's just important that you're putting it all in the right spot. Um, what about the other one? Like I can imagine you see a lot of issues there. Obviously there's a lot of startups and sometimes there's a the new model related to the, the founder and co-founder. And I've seen it in scenarios where there's often no agreement between the two between the two sort of founder and the co-founder. And yeah. often what starts out is all all uh, passion and uh, you know innovation and excitement and enthusiasm, you know, sort of two to three years down the track can just end up in disaster because either one person's lost passion or one person decides they want to move on or you know they, they can't be sustained in the business or whatever it may be. What, what sort of issues have you seen in that area? Yeah, this, this comes um, uh, up all the time and it's, it's never usually anyone's fault. Um, you know, when you're starting a, starting a, a business, you, you've got two founders, they're best friends, they, they never think that they would not want to work together in the future. But life happens and people have kids or people need to move away and, um, you know, they, can, they need to leave the business. And so it's so important that if you are starting a venture with somebody, um, or if you're, you started a venture and you're looking to actually take on some professional funding, that you introduce this concept of vesting. So um, vesting shares means that um, essentially the co-founders or even the first few key employees that are coming into your business, they earn their shares over time. And what this means is, I'll use an example just to kind of simplify it. You have two co-founders, they both start a business, they both issue themselves 50% shares each. Say there's 100 shares in the company, 50-50. A year down the track, co-founder number two gets married, has um, a, a kid and needs to leave the business and, and find 
potentially a, a high paying role um, at no fault of his own. He leaves the business and pretty much walks away with those 50 shares. Um, now, it was his idea and I'm sure he's entitled to some, but that makes it really, really difficult for the remaining founder because essentially he's now doing twice the amount of work for 50% of the upside. And also if he wants to go and find himself a new founder or fill out an executive team of new employees, he's only got half the equity that he can work with. And raising and money as well. Yeah, and, and raising money. You know, no, no VC wants to see that, you know, half your cap table is off with somebody that's not included in the business anymore. Um, so uh, if you had investing in place, um, let's say you have the two co-founders, they start a business, they put in some simple time-based vesting. And what this says is that over the next three years, you will earn your 50% of the shares evenly each quarter or each month. Um, what, when the, the co-founder, the second co-founder goes to leave, um, says, look, I can't stay with the business anymore. He's only been with the business for a year. He only takes his one year's worth of shares away with him um, because he's earned those and the unvested shares, they're brought back into the business and can be used for, for new people. So this works with, uh, with co-founders. Um, this also works with, uh, under the ESOP rules with, with new employees. What we've also seen is that we, we have a lot of founders that come to us and they say, hey, look, we set the company up a year ago. We didn't put any vesting in place. Um, what can we do? You know, our, our investor that wants to come in, he's saying we need vesting. What can we do? Um, what we've seen is this idea of reverse vesting as well, where you can uh, create an agreement that says, look, you've already been issued those shares, but if you don't stay, then we'll call it, that will take those shares back. Um, and so, you know, that's a way for a lot of those people that maybe set up their company originally without thinking about a few of these concepts can still introduce them into the business. Now, another, uh, I'll say another favorite one I, I, I like to cover, and I think this is one of the most important ones uh, for, for new companies. And it's something that, you know, said for me that, you know, I've had to work on now over the last sort of few years in sort of, it's not been sort of quite right. Um, the shareholders agreement. Yep. What guidance could you give to companies about the potential downfalls of the wrong shareholders agreement and why it's so, and how it can even, so I've heard, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, where I basically, you know, dealt with a founder, you know, I've heard about their, seen their, seen their media release for their exit and, you know, and just even the structure, the structure of the shareholders agreement or the structure of different preferences, so forth coming in for the existing investors where, the founder has done a deal, uh, done a deal with a with, with a VC. They've successfully sold the business, but because of preferences, they uh, they effectively haven't really made any money from the exit themselves. And then the other one is is just shareholders agreements with larger groups, where it becomes really inflexible and difficult for the company uh, for future capital raising or for future for future strategy sort of uh, I suppose strategic maneuvers that they they may need uh, to do. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the shareholders agreement um, uh, is just a, is a core document that every company needs. Interestingly, you know, only about five percent of companies out there actually have shareholders agreements, uh, which wow. is which is baffling to me because it's it's really the most important legal document that you will have in your business. So just just for those people that um, just at a very high level, um, you might have heard of. Shareholders agreement, you might have heard of a constitution. So the constitution is yes. the agreement between the company and 
The shareholders? The shareholders is the agreement between the shareholders themselves. So this is a document that deals with um, who can buy and sell shares, when they can buy and sell shares, what happens if there's a dispute, how many voting rights they have. It goes to how the board's made up, um, how the voting rights work on the board, all those type of things. So all those really core things that you need to operate a business. I think that um, you know we law path, you know, a big part of our of our revenue comes from legal automation or, or do-it-yourself type legal documents. And I am always a real, um, I kind of always champion this idea that using software, you can do certain legal documents yourselves. The shareholders agreement is the exception. Um, this is a document that it is so important that you go and get some help with from a lawyer, because as you kind of mentioned there, Steve, it doesn't just have implications when you create it or when you maybe a year down the track, this document, obviously, unless you replace it, is going to have implications for the life of your business. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's issues that pop up that you just won't foresee in four or five years' time. For example, as you mentioned, on an exit, how does the shareholders' agreement play in there? So a couple of, um, couple of kind of pointers on, on the shareholders' agreement without going into too much detail. I think one is... Um, you know, don't don't be stingy on on the, on when you're creating your shareholders agreement. Uh, I think there's documents out there that you can create yourself to save yourself money as a startup. Um, I think the shareholders agreement is not one of them. The other one is is we see a lot of really complex structures coming through for early stage businesses. And I think just, it's just quickly, are those typically those complex structures. Where are they typically coming from? Because I know, I, I know, it, typically when comp, when smaller companies don't have shareholder agreements, that typically the the larger group will have a shareholders agreement that they typically have as a starting point or as a template that they like to work with. So, where are you typically seeing those? Which type of investment groups are you typically seeing them coming through from? Well, no. So I'm actually I'm, I'm I'm even one step before that. What we're seeing is when founders are uh, there's a couple of founders that are getting together and they're starting to think about the rights and um, that they have at the, in the in the business. They're creating their own very complex structures and then wanting that to be portrayed in the shareholders agreement. For example, different share classes and different voting rights and founders rights. I think one thing to remember is it's really really important to try and keep things as simple as possible when you're starting up because as you move forward and as you bring on more professional investors, they will have different requirements that will be added to your shareholders agreement and soon it will become very, very complex. Um, in terms of kind of actual investment investment parties or uh, groups that we're, we're seeing ter uh, complex terms come through, um, any, any professional VC uh, that comes in that is kind of collaboratively creating your shareholders agreement is going to look to put protections in place that will protect themselves, especially on an exit. I think it's very important that if you are creating a shareholders agreement at about the time that you are raising, you get your own independent advice um, and not just rely on the investor that's coming through. Um, the company needs to get its own advice as well, because although you are all becoming shareholders in the same uh, business, sometimes different interests align in different ways. One of the, one of the challenges I, you know, and this is a, this is a dance, right? Cause you typically think about when, a, now when it's typically, you know, high net worth going into deals, you don't really, it's fairly straight. It's a fairly straightforward process. 
what I'm looking at, well, sort of the perspective I'm thinking about for companies as they're going and what they need to sort of be aware about is from a investor's point of view, their goal from their side is to basically have options, right? And one of the, one of the fears that I, I have for potential companies when they're going down this path is that sometimes, and there was a, it was a great, and this, you know, don't take offense to this, but, this, but uh, I, I heard that often two of the biggest killers of deals sometimes can be lawyers and also, and also time, right? And because this go back and forth between the lawyers and the, then the investment group and so forth just creates, because it's effectively very hard for a lawyer to not comment or not make changes to a different agreement or not see but then there's some point in which there's got to be a, a commercial reality. Do you have any tips for sort of founders that are navigating their way through that process the, of the, you know, taking advice and also being commercial in the, in the sort of final decision? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, being a lawyer myself and going through a number of cap raises uh, recently for LawPuff, I even found my own lawyers to be a handbrake. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that that is actually, um, that is their job. You know, they've been trained to be as risk averse as possible and think about every, everything that could happen, both positive and negative. Um, the, the founder um, and, and particularly the ones negotiating the deal from the VCs, they're thinking at it far more commercial. Um, so I think it's really important to um, kind of understand that um, that they are looking for the worst case scenario, you're looking for the best case scenario. What I've found is really important as well is that to try and get the lawyer involved as early as possible. Now, I know that this can be difficult, especially when it comes to cost, but the more context that lawyers have about the deal and about how the deal came together, the quicker they're going to be at actually resolving it and getting through those harder points. So, for example, you know, when we see a client come through that, that says, look, We've got the investors um, done. We've signed the term sheet. We didn't get the term sheet checked by a lawyer. It's ready for subscription agreement, shareholders agreement. And here's everything that we want. The lawyer kind of thinks, you know, what's going on? I have to get up to speed straight away and can, and can often be a handbrake because they're going back and asking a lot of questions. Whereas if you've potentially got the lawyer involved at the term sheet stage, and which you should be doing anyway, um, and getting them comfortable with the deal and getting them comfortable with the other side, we find that the shareholders agreement, the subscription agreement flow a lot better. Interesting. And is, is there any sort of other final tips you'd like to provide for, for companies as they're going down this process, as far as whether it be navigating the final agreements or any, I suppose, any other areas to think about when they're going through the, the capital raising process? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I can, I can, give some thoughts from a legal perspective, but then also just as a, as a founder and having been through it myself, I think it's, it can be really, really difficult from personal experience. I've found that um, it's that kind of book build um, stage that, that's really stressful when you're, when you're out, you've got some, kind of some warm people, but you're trying to kind of get them over the line. So um you know, from a, from a personal perspective, I think it's really, really important to find a lead early on and have that person drive not just the commercial side of the raise, but also the legal side of the raise. So get them really comfortable with, with the terms, with the term sheet or with the, the shells agreement, if you're bringing that in place. And then everyone else just kind of follows on behind. Um, 
I also think that, um, as you mentioned before, lawyers and time can, can be the killer of, of a raise. You know, having, and I know I keep harping on about this, but we just see it time and time again, having that data room up and running and ready to go, just going through the process of thinking about each area of your business from a legal perspective and making sure it's ready for a capital raise, just going through that process means that you don't miss anything because unfortunately, if something's been missed, it often can't be fixed within a week or two weeks. And if you find out, say, for example, right now, we're doing this podcast towards the end of the year and if you're trying to get a, a raise done by the end of the year because we know all the investors fly off to Aspen over Christmas, um, you know, you, if there's a legal issue and you haven't, you haven't filled it, it could take longer than two or three weeks to sort out. You miss it and the deal goes cold and you have to start all over again. So getting that data room up and running and making sure that everything's in there um, and reaching out and getting a lawyer involved as early as possible in the deal is really important for context. Now, I know um, the cost can come into that. The last thing you want to be doing is getting a lawyer at five, six, seven hundred dollars an hour involved in the deal too early and, and thinking you're wasting your money. So what I think is important is trying to get a relationship with somebody that you trust early on. Maybe they've done a few pieces of work for you beforehand. Um, and getting them uh, at least up to scratch with the deal on the term sheet so that when it does come to the actual drafting and, and finishing it off, they're comfortable and, and you trust that they're doing the right thing for you. Good advice. Well, Dom, really appreciate, appreciate your time and congrats on to you guys. I know you guys just recently completed a significant capital raise with, your, with a sort of US counterpart leading. And, you know, for me, it's great to see the success of what you're doing. And obviously, you know, it's... It's platforms like what you're looking to do that really sort of, I suppose, inspire us on the, on the mission of CRISP because, you know, effectively you've done for the legal, you're doing for the legal aspect what we want to do specifically for the, the, the capital rating side in that, you, you know, you're making it simpler for founders to navigate what was typically, you know, in some ways considered almost like a dark, a, a dark art and you're really sort of quite unsure about many different things but you've really simplified the processes for founders and you know i admire i always admire that in the business and obviously want to champion it uh as much as possible oh well, thank you for those kind words really appreciate it i um uh i think to anyone listening if they do have questions about capital raising or or even just legal questions obviously feel free to reach out to LawPath. Uh, we do have this fantastic new product which is unlimited calls with a lawyer each month that a lot of startups are taking on just for those everyday legal questions that you have that you maybe don't have someone to ask, uh, this is a really good product for them. So feel free to reach out. We have a, a team here that always love to hear from startups and what they're going through and can definitely provide advice. Um, and, and thank you very much, very much for having me today. Brilliant. Thanks, Dominic. No problems. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye. Source the latest deals, engage with new investors, and close your deals sooner with Crisp at crisp.io.